0: Outdoor space has always been at its best when people use it as a part of their daily life. You know, you take a stroll in the park, you unwind, you de-stress. You take your kids to the the playground. Like, these are indelible things that exist across the world, across time.
1: Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. Last time we enjoyed a conversation with Zach Bollatin, and he shared how his parents' formative experience at the Seattle World's Fair gave him the idea to publish the book 62 Souvenirs, showcasing family stories by way of a collection of fair memorabilia. And Zach mentioned how the fair propelled Seattle into the jet age, and more importantly, It also caused us to reinvent the fairgrounds into a new civic place, a 74-acre campus with 40 acres of open space that has become one of Seattle's top visitor and tourism destinations. Well, today we'll explore the design and development of a current infrastructure project, one likely to transform the city today, much like the World's Fair did in the last century, by reclaiming the 17 blocks comprising the 1.5-mile-long Seattle waterfront as a new city park reconnecting downtown Seattle to Elliott Bay after over a hundred years of separation. Beginning with the reconstruction of the Elliott Bay Seawall in 2017 and the removal of the Alaskan Way Viaduct completed in 2019, the project will recenter the city, shaping a new public realm. Our guest today leads the design for this effort, and he's a landscape architect and urban designer with New York City-based James Corner Field Operations. He's been part of the Seattle Project since 2010. And if you visited New York City in the last decade, you may know his firm's work through the High Line, a 1.45-mile-long elevated linear park created on the former New York Central Railroad Spur on the west side of Manhattan. Prior to joining field operations, our guest was a designer with EDAW with projects that included Washington, D.C.'s Marvin Gaye Park, the National Museum of American History, the Potomac Yard Linear Park, as well as New York's World Trade Center Streetscape so today we'll explore how a community's greatest opportunities sometimes ride the coattails of its greatest perils, and we'll get an insider's perspective on how listening to thousands of local voices, your voices, has been incorporated into a new civic space, one that reflects today's needs as well as our hopes and dreams for the future. And stick around, toward the end of today's podcast, our guests will provide you with a block-by-block tour of the park, and we'll also hear the voice of a local project partner who will share how her knowledge of indigenous food systems will be integrated into the project. So let's welcome our guest today, landscape architect and urban designer, Andrew Tenbrick. Hey, Andrew.
0: Hi, Edward. Thanks for the invitation.
1: So tell us about the role, generally, of a landscape architect, and how do they contribute to a city?
0: Yeah, that is such a good question, and there's never an easy answer to it, because it covers such a broad range of subdisciplines. It could, on one hand, be um, a gardener that's focused on you know, residential gardens and building beautiful spaces to, to live in, and it could be somebody that is focused on highly urban areas that have no plants at all, um, and is often somewhere in between. And when did you realize that you had an interest in the discipline? I actually stumbled on it both by accident and out of desperation. Um, I went to Purdue University to start my career, I thought, as an engineer, um, as an aerospace engineer. And as I went through it, uh, through the first and second semester, I uh, was both deeply unhappy with what I was doing and very bad at what I was doing, which isn't a good combination. So I um, was very down one day and I was talking to a friend at a coffee shop and I said, you know, Sarah, I don't know what to do. You know, I don't, I don't know what I should be doing. And she said, well, you should try to take a class in landscape architecture. And so somehow through the course of that, the end of that semester, the beginning of the next, I changed my major to landscape architecture and uh, loved the first class I took and never looked back. And then share your journey educationally. Purdue has a really wonderful program. Um, it's a school based in the Midwest, in Indiana. And they have strong ties to the, well, it's the school is in the horticulture department. And so there's heavy ties to horticulture, agriculture, and um, kind of a very Midwestern sensibility of, of design and landscape. And at the end of my fourth year, I was fortunate to have a year and a half internship with a company that was called EDA, EDAW, E-D-A-W, um, and then was bought by an even larger conglomerate, AECOM. And that was in Washington, D.C. And that exposed me kind of being this younger uh, kid from the Midwest to you know, my, my soft entrance to the East Coast, which is Washington, D.C. And at the end of that, I realized that I wasn't done learning. And I thought about applying to grad school Um, and I had visited a friend of mine who lived in Boston at the time, and I just fell in love with Boston, and the mountains beyond, we would go hiking, and um, it just, it really kind of pulled me, so I thought, you know, why don't I try to apply to the Graduate School of Design at Harvard and, you know, see what happens. I didn't really have expectations, and it worked out that I got in, and I knew, even when I was in grad school, that to work for some of these firms that had some of these really great projects, um, to work at some of those firms, most people had a graduate degree. So that was kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to go. And at the end of it, I had been badgering field operations for a job for, for months and months. And then I, I finally got one. Wow. Yeah. Persistence. Yeah. It pays off. <laughs> So then
1: you moved to New York City?
0: Yeah, I moved to Brooklyn. Um, I lived with a classmate of mine um, who was from Brooklyn, and it was my first uh, time living there for any extended period of time, and just really, you know, f- fell in love with the, the job. I think me, as a kind of Midwesterner at heart, it took some time to kind of acclimate, you know, to the city and, and have it feel like a neighborhood and a home. But 13 years later, it, it does feel like home.
1: So you mentioned that landscape architecture can mean many, many different things.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, work in an urban area to me always felt like it was able to take something that I loved, which was gardens, and broaden its reach out to a larger group of people um, in a way that generally is intrinsically good. You know, it's generally making people's lives better. And that felt like a good thing to me, knowing that the job requires a lot, a lot of hours. Um, so you better be happy with what you're doing um, for that to pay off. And so um, projects like you know, the High Line, Brooklyn Bridge Park and Fresh Kills in Staten Island, they're all essentially infrastructural projects. And at the time in, in the field, there was this kind of discourse about interdisciplinarity, landscape urbanism, landscape infrastructure, and and all of that was really to help give credence to the field of landscape and how it can lend itself to big infrastructure projects that have a lot of money behind it. And so that kind of thinking that field operations was doing about plant succession management over time, things like that were really intriguing to me as well.
1: Well, Seattle is known for being insular and oftentimes when outside talent is brought in to manage big projects, whoever does that is roundly criticized. So Paul Allen, when he engaged Frank Gehry to design the EMP, now MOPOP, was very criticized. Why didn't you use a local architect? Or when Rem Koolhaas was hired by the Seattle Public Library to design our central library, again, why not find someone local? So why do you think it was that Seattle chose your firm?
0: Well, in 2010, there was a request for qualifications, which is essentially, um, you know, come here and tell us why you think you're the right one to do it. And there was, you know, a process that kind of narrowed this down to three or four firms. And our approach to all of our projects is often we are outsiders. Um, We do have a fair amount of work in New York, but we have work all over the world. And we certainly think we have good ideas, um, good frameworks for kind of creating ideas. But we also understand what we don't know. And that was a, a big part of our approach to this project of, you know, we we do have a lot of experience, you know, with urban projects like this that are complex, that are dealing with many different consultants. But we came there with a, you know, approach of, we we need to engage, you know, these types of local partners. We are very interested in talking to the public and hearing what they have to say, what they want to do, and learning. And several aspects of that, I, I think, resonated with, I'll say, the city to generalize, um, whether it's kind of the, the agency heads that we were talking with or the public, but was one a humility um, that, you know, we're not here to impose a New York project on you. You know, we, every project is tailored, you know, to the site and to the people. And also, the owner James Corner has a background in growing up in an industrial city in Manchester, and so he was viewing the waterfront kind of through that industrial lens. That there, there's an authenticity to that, uh, both to the the history of its past um, and also, you know, where it is now. That yes, there are commercial activities that are. Often cater to tourists on the on the waterfront now, but there is a lot of industry that's happening as well. And so, remaining um, kind of authentic to that, I think was appealing to them, and it's something that we've you know tried to hold on to and kind of imbue within the project.
1: When we were talking earlier, we had chatted a little bit about the Olmsted brothers' legacy. And it was almost like a ghost in the room because you didn't want to compare <laughs> field operations to Olmstead's. But it's a great example where 100 years ago, we also sought advice from an outside firm. Yeah. And Portland and a lot of cities did, and they really reshaped and redesigned. Can you talk a little bit about, especially for our listeners who may not know who they are, what their impact was, where you're living now and, and here in the Seattle area?
0: Yeah, of course. Um, Frederick Law Olmstead was a, probably one of the most famous landscape architects, at least in, in the United States. Um, He was really a a visionary in New York City and how he framed the role of public landscape. He, if not the first, was the most kind of loud in how he talked about how a park can frame the way a city develops. And in Manhattan, which is a kind of a a long rectangle, let's say, in the center of it, um, there was land at the time in the early to mid-1800s that that wasn't that developed, but development was quickly approaching it. And he said, wait, 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 maybe we should carve some of this out um, and hold it. And I believe there was development there already that people were probably displaced from. And as a result, because of that, that kind of marking, you had the city grow around it. And as a result of the, a nice park being there, you had very expensive buildings going up next to it um, that have continued to this day that in turn increase the tax base that in turn help fund the maintenance of the park. And he did a, a similar type of, of park in Brooklyn called Prospect Park which is a, a similar type of park. Um, there's less density there. It feels a little bit more um, rural. But in, in both cases, you really get lost in just being in a landscape while kind of strengthening the border of the the division between the city and the, and the park. And so this kind of tie between the way parks can increase economic value, I think was seen very clearly through those examples. And so he... He then went off, you know. To he was very successful with this. Um, his brother was a part of the firm as well, and so they they went off to different cities, to Boston, to um, you know Seattle and um, and Portland, and offered their you know services and in, in you know helping cities think about their approach to um, landscape. And um, so there was a a framework plan for Seattle that was kind of the series of a ring of parks um, that would. If not be physically connected, kind of psychologically connected to to give a, a an array of open spaces, and part of the waterfront was a piece of that that was never built for obvious reasons. The the industry was too important. Um, what is now Alaskan Way was Railroad Avenue that was full of railroad, and so the downtown waterfront couldn't be linked at that time because it was so you know heavily used by industry, and so we saw, you know, what we thought was a great opportunity to help, you know, create that connection to connect those links.
1: How do parks function now differently for urban dwellers compared to say a hundred years ago when the park systems evolved?
0: One change is density. So there's more people for the most part, you know, that are, they're using the parks. Um, I think, One of the biggest changes that we've seen, not just in New York, but probably for almost every public park, is this idea of how are we going to maintain it? And if you were in New York City in the 70s, you really wouldn't want to be in Central Park past sunset. Um, It wasn't a safe place, and that was true of, of most parks, Bryant Park as well. So there came this idea of, well, What if we were able to create a partnership between the public, which would be the the parks department, and a private entity that would help maintain it and then help take that uh, funding need away from the parks department so that it could be used elsewhere? And so that type of funding model, a a public-private partnership where the city owns the park but a private entity maintains it, has really helped uh, both – Allow it to be a safe place. It, it costs money to monitor a park to have you know security guards and things like that, um, as well as programming it. Bryant Park is a is a great example of uh, outdoor libraries, chess rooms, ping pong tables, outdoor markets, movie nights, yoga mornings. It, you know it, it's endless, and people love it because they're spending their life there. Um, and you know that that's their sort of outdoor living room and that's something that we think about a lot and I think it is different than I think people used you know parks back then but there is a a thread that goes through that of outdoor space has always been at its best when people use it as a part of their daily life you know you take a stroll in the park you unwind you de-stress um, you take your kids to the, the playground like th- these are indelible things that exist across the world across time. but the way that that is kind of you know kept safe, programmed, managed has evolved.
1: Will that private public partnership be applicable for the Seattle Waterfront park?
0: It is yeah how yeah. will it work? Uh, there is an agency called the uh, Friends of the Waterfront. Um, And they are, for the most part, uh, maintaining and programming the waterfront. Um, Through them, there's a partnership with Seattle Center, um, who has a wonderful history of maintaining their grounds. um, And because of their knowledge, um, they will be the entity that is kind of doing the work and maintaining, whether that is, you know, kind of picking up the trash or cleaning the sidewalks or planting new plants when they, they need to be
2: this
1: will be transformative for seattle mark my words
0: every one of you is at the equivalent of the groundbreaking for the space needle
1: so let's focus on framework seattle is a place that dreams big but we don't always succeed in turning these dreams into reality so often we get mired down in process and the result is ad hoc or it never really happens at all and the seattle commons is shining example of that. So what was the original vision for the Seattle waterfront,
0: and how did that vision get transformed into a real park? The project really started with uh, what we called a framework plan. Um, there, there was, at the, back in 2010, a general idea of, you know, where the work could happen along the waterfront, but there wasn't a project boundary, really. And so the, the framework plan was trying to create a project boundary and identify areas that the waterfront can connect into. Um, and so, a part of that was understanding where the waterfront sits in um, Elliott Bay, and I, us coming in as outsiders, not being familiar with you know West Seattle at the point and the way the the bay kind of you know wraps around to create almost a circle. Um, and so, part of that was understanding those types of connections, um, vehicular, bikes, and pedestrians, and then also understanding those neighborhoods and what kind of, you know, key connections. And so one early idea was this thought of how can we recenter Seattle around the bay so that it is not its backyard, but something it's looking out and kind of pushing out to. And as we kind of move in closer to the scale of the waterfront, looking at the, the different neighborhoods, and um, we think of the waterfront maybe as one place, but it's um, where these different neighborhoods meet the water. And they're very different neighborhoods, going from Soto to Pioneer Square um, to the kind of central business district, and then up to Belltown. All very distinct. Um, They have different grids, and so they, they physically meet the waterfront in different ways. And so kind of recognizing that, understanding that, understanding how the waterfront then can connect back into the city and an example of that might be, um, which might be obvious to many people, but it wasn't uh, to us as outsiders at the time was Yesler Way, the key connection. It goes back. It has this kind of really wonderful connection back into a variety of very diverse neighborhoods, Maine and Washington streets and Pioneer Square. They, you know, move through Occidental Park, which is a key node to that. And so, you know, identifying those as opportunities to um, potentially do improvements And as the project moved north, a lot of the thought was, well, how can we better create some of these connections, pedestrian connections that navigate the bluff that that rises as as you go north? And and what are those key connections to make? And so it became obvious pretty quickly that Pike Place Market is a key destination for many people, both local and, and visitors, and the Seattle Aquarium is one too. And so there was this idea of, you know, could we somehow create a pedestrian connection that is both a pathway and a park that can take people from Pike Place Market down to the waterfront? And that was without doing any physical design. You know, where does the project want to go? And what are these key connections to make? How did
1: you determine the priority of the connection between the city and the waterfront, and then it sounded like the views beyond. How did that become a driving
0: strategy? I think that is where the public process really became an important aspect of this. Um, and, and I will say our, you know, partnerships with a variety of different city agencies, like the Department of Transportation, Parks and Recreation, um, and others that have a uh, plethora of experience of you know living and and being in in the city and kind of seeing and hearing what people want. But the the first public meeting we had um, kind of presented this idea of of the project of understanding the different neighborhoods and talking about program. Um, and so you know we gave this probably hundred slide presentation to all of these people that were passionate enough to come out, you know, at a probably a weekday night at the the Seattle aquarium. And we asked them a key question of what do you most want to do on the waterfront and where do you most want to be on the waterfront? And we had these, these long maps that showed kind of uh, a picture of the waterfront and we gave them uh, pink stickers and we said, "You know, put a, put a sticker on you know, the place that you most want to be. And you know, to, to no one's real surprise, it was where they were almost out of the water. So the tip of Pier 62, 63. And so that became, you know, obvious that that those were key places. At another place, of course, was Pike Place Market, that was on there. That people people liked being there, both for the views and the activity. Um, and then we asked them, "What do you want to do?" And there's not a lot of surprises there, but a lot of it were kind of what we think of sort of you know very pedestrian things. Like they want to get a coffee, they want to stroll, um, they want to look at the water, they want to touch the water. But as pedestrian as that might be. There were also things that they weren't always able to do down there. It wasn't that pleasant of a place to take a stroll with the viaduct running overhead. And, you know, we would be you would be shouting at each other without realizing you you needed to be. And so that helped kind of check some of these provocations that we had. And then we, we came back in a second meeting and we said, you know, we've, we've heard what you said. This is, you know, how we've interpreted it. Here are some very early design ideas of this connection from Pike Place Market down to the, the water. And it was a very provocative thought of, you know, creating this uh, bridge-type park that will span over a roadway that's not the viaduct and it, you know, it really challenged people to think outside of, you know, that what, what they had in their city at the time. And me, as a, a, a early designer at that time, you know, this was my maybe second year out of grad school. I assumed this would disappear. You know, of course, this will go away at some point. It's so fanciful, but um, that transformed into the Overlook Walk project that we have today, and is, I think, at fifty percent construction.
1: Yesterday I took a walk, as we talked about, from the stadiums all the way up to the Sculpture Garden. Can you
0: walk us through, as if you were giving us a tour, uh, pointing out the different nodes? Yeah, yeah, of course. The project starts at the the stadiums. Um, south Dearborn, I think, is, is the the street. And it goes up into Belltown and stops around Bell Street. Um, on the waterfront side, at the kind of low part of the bluff, it stops around Pier 62. Um, so when you start at the south end at what we call Railroad Way. Um, this was where Railroad Avenue kind of terminated and, and went into the city at that point. Um, that all, it used to be a marsh. Um, and so they were railroad tracks that were on trussles um, kind of hovering over the over the water. And now it, it terminates, of course, into the, into the stadium. It's a different experience. But that part of the project, it also sits within the Pioneer Square Historic District. And so there's different design guidelines for, for what to do there in different review agencies. So the uh, Pioneer Square Historic Board, um, their interest is in trying to you know, preserve and communicate the history of Pioneer Square, which is why Pioneer Square looks the way it does and has the tri-globes and these you know, beautiful old buildings. And so going in there with a the new park, there was you know, th- their desire to have you know some kind of communication of the, the history of the project and so the project used uh, kind of embedded metal to kind of communicate the railway um, that was there. And we also tried to use a lot of kind of native shoreline planting um, there too to help sort of think about the past, the um, the native shoreline. And so um, it's a big open flexible space uh, meant for, you know, kind of gatherings for the stadiums and, and so on. Then as, as you move north from there, from, you know, King Street to up to, Around Washington Street. It's essentially kind of a a widened sidewalk. Um, But what we tried to do because the road at that point is is quite wide, is to use street trees and use street tree planting to kind of help buffer. Um, And there was an enormous investment that the city made in using um, what we call soil cells which allow the soil to be uncompacted underneath the sidewalk, which allows a lot of room for those tree roots to go, which allows the trees to get very big and help give some buffer between the buildings and the sidewalk and the roadway. The materials that are used are all kind of very authentic to what we found in Seattle. And so the, the pavement, there's a lot of exposed aggregate. That, in our mind, was both kind of relating to this uh, shoreline's kind of previous life as a beach, and so how can we bring those pebbles back you know, in, into the sidewalk? As well as kind of tougher industrial materials like metal that's allowed to rust. And so you'll see tree pit guards that are kind of rusting and exposed aggregate sidewalks. As you get close to Yesler, Yesler Way, um, there's this opening where you no longer have the port um, to the west and you have a new beach. And that new beach was built as a part of the Elliott Bay seawall project. And um, for those that were kind of down in the waterfront area between 2017 and uh, 2019, there was a whole lot of construction between the piers and the roadway. And that was building a new seawall, um, which was damaged damage in an earthquake in, in 2001. And one of the key imperatives of the seawall project, along with building a seawall that is not going to fall into the water was to help bolster a salmon migration corridor that was traveling uh, down the Duwamish up the, um, the coast of the downtown Seattle and, and going further north into the mountains. And currently with the, the piers and the overwater coverage the way it was that these little fish would have to swim way out you know to the edge of the pier. And as they did that, they would get into deeper water and they would be eaten by larger creatures. And so it was a dangerous truck for them. And so there was a challenge of how can we build this so that we can give um, the fish a sort of shallow water area to swim in so larger predators can't come while building a seawall while having a sidewalk on top of that. The beach is the entrance point for them to go kind of under this area that we we call the light penetrating surface that lets light through the sidewalk um, to the shallow area. And that beach was, I think, really important to us. When, when we came, we went to the beach at Myrtle Edwards Park. And it's such a, a beautiful piece of the water where you can get down, you can touch it, you can hear the water lapping. And we thought that it was important to, to have that here. Um, and so that was, was built there. There's artwork by Buster Simpson, who I'm sure many, many people know and, and love. His, his artwork is focused on kind of the Anthropocene nature of the beach, that um, it's a natural beach, but it's highly engineered and highly built, and so he has the series of dolos and, and sandbags that are out there. And north of there, then, you get to a, a kind of a very different area that is kind of dominated by Coleman Dock, and that has recently transformed quite a bit. You know, the, the new ferry terminal... And they have this wonderful public space kind of to the west where you can get up and see the bay in this elevated way. Because of that, there's a lot of, you know, movement coming in from the city, coming from the south, from the north of, you know, kind of daily commutes of people. There's high volumes, both pedestrians and cars. And so that, that area gets very busy. And so the, um, the thought of that is, you know, let, let's have a landscape that really supports that, that, you know, creates a space that allows people to, to move freely, to see more easily um, for example, to you know, to see the taxi cab, to see when the bus is coming, but have a, a very robust landscape that um, is tough and can handle that kind of uh, traffic and use. Um, we have at the at the intersection of Columbia Street and uh, the, what we call the Promenade, this kind of wide wide walking space. Um, a relocation of uh, one of George Sudikawa's fountains that used to be at the the ferry terminal, and that was kind of put away in storage as they were kind of doing their construction. And um, we worked with uh, members of the family to uh, design a new basin um, for the fountain, along with uh, fluidity, who is a a fountain designer that we work with often. And that will kind of be at the the heart of of Columbia, which is a, a special area. Moving north from there, at the kind of north side of the the Coleman Dock Ferry Terminal, there used to be a pier that was you know entirely devoted to traffic queuing. Cars would be parked there. It was between Coleman Dock and uh, the firehouse, and we knew um, early on that that would be demolished as a part of the the Coleman Dock plans. And so um, we, um, in our vernacular, called that firehouse slip and we're excited that there was this new view out to the water that you really didn't have before and so in that block um, on the east side of uh, the promenade where people will be walking we have these giant um, i-beam frames um, from which swings will be hanging that you can swing and have this view out to the water and that's sort of the first like fanciful thing you know that it's not necessary. It's not just purely functional, but it, there, there's this fancifulness to it, and um, I think that's special and necessary, you know, on the, on the waterfront, where it's both serious and it's kind of authentic materials and, and heft, but they are also swings. And behind that is something that's consistent, really, between um, kind of Coleman Dock and uh, up to uh, Pike Street, is a quite wide array of gardens. One of your previous interviewees was Richard Hartledge uh, with Land Morphology, and they were our local partner on planting design on this project. And they've been wonderful to work with and kind of developing this idea of creating gardens on a waterfront. There's a fair amount of planting in Seattle, but there's not a lot of gardens in kind of downtown Seattle. moving north of university, you get to the pier, which we call uh, Pier 58. And uh, this is the pier uh, just north of the Great Wheel that is indelible now to Seattle. And this is another kind of big open space. Um, We have reoriented the edge of that pier. So it's a it's a straight edge and it kind of focuses out uh, to the water. There's a big central gathering area in the middle. And to the west of that, as you move out to the water, there'll be a groove of trees and a lawn that looks back at the city. On the north end of that pier, closest to the aquarium, there's going to be a new playground. Um, it has some pretty wild shapes to it. It was inspired in part by the kind of nature of a jellyfish. Um, so it'll allow kids to kind of climb up the structure and get above the water, kind of look out at different elevations, as well as some kind of uh, other play areas for younger kids. Things like that, um, so that that will be, I think, a really special place. Um, it is both very flexible in the way people can use it, um, but it is also, you know, has these program elements that have never existed on the waterfront. As we move north of there, we you know, you approach the aquarium building, and the aquarium has been a really wonderful and collaborative partner. Um, with us for a long time, and they've had a goal of expanding their facilities for as long as we've been a part of the project. It happened that it worked out um, for both their kind of funding and construction schedules that they wanted to build a building that we could then connect the Overlook Walk project to. And so as you move north of the aquarium, you now see this kind of wonderful glass building that will be an expansion of the aquarium building. Its roof deck will be a public roof deck that connects into the Overlook Walk Project and goes up to um, Pike Place Market. And so this is a kind of a wonderful civic structure that uh, has beautiful views out to the water, expansive views that are above roof lines, um, places to sit and gather, places to get a cup of coffee. And this is one of the most impressive pieces of public work that's been built out there. I think it's, it's pretty spectacular and it's being executed quite nicely. So further north of there, the roadway starts picking up. So Alaskan Way, which will turn into Elliott Way, kind of rises to approach Belltown. And the Overlook Walk bridges over that. As you're going along the roadway, there are two important pieces of public art that are a part of that. If you're driving north on Alaskan Way, on the right side, you will have an art piece that will be done by Anne Hamilton, um, who's a wonderful artist that's done a lot of both public and private art, and that will kind of be playing with light and shadow and will help kind of give life to a wall that's stretching along there. On the left side of that, um, kind of in this cradle of the Overlook Walk project, there will be a piece of art that is done by um, three women who are tribal members called MTK Matriarchs. And this is their sort of adaptation and story of a basket basket weave. And so there'll be a piece there that I think is a, a really significant piece for the waterfront to have at that location right next to the water and kind of having that connection to the, the Salish Sea at that point. As we move up the roadway, then we get kind of into the Belltown area. And to me, this is one of the most transformative pieces of the project because there was nothing there besides viaduct. There's viaduct and maybe some blueberry bushes on the, um, on the slope down. And now there is a, a roadway that has sidewalks. It has street trees. It has what I think is a really transformative planting um, on both sides of the roadway. It gets to be more of a garden even as you as you move north. And so, it's taking the space that was kind of you know both dark and scary and not at all for people, and is making a roadway and sidewalk a really pleasant place to be. Um, and to me, I think it, it's it's one of the most transformative. It, in many ways, kind of in design, was kind of a streetscape. But through all of the work, I think it's it's turned out to be kind of a lovely space. And that essentially is the the end of the the project.
1: One of the ways in which this project is unique is that it was international from the standpoint of engaging multiple tribal governments. How did that process work and who was engaged?
0: This started pretty early in the project where we understood that you know this was important and special to the project. Um, I think we as a as a firm were particularly interested in it and the the city was as well. and so, the city had several kind of contacts and liaisons with different tribal groups. And so we initially went to them to kind of talk about, you know, what's important to you, kind of what pieces of not even just the waterfront, but, you know, just learning from them. And that kind of grew and grew in different ways. I remember we were talking about Pier 58 and this kind of connection to the water. And then they said, "Well, like, let us show you about like, our important connections to the water." And so they took us to to several beaches. Um, they talked about Ballast Island too, which is right around the Washington area. Key kind of places that they held as being you know very significant to them. And so I think you know that learning about you know what pieces of not just the waterfront but kind of you know life on the coast you know is, is key to them um, they're salish tribes and so that has to do with the the salt water and so you know being being on the coast and there's this kind of broad connection of of different interests between them and i think as, as we were working with them more and more we kept thinking you know well, gosh it would be nice to have somebody on the team you know, that, that is a, a tribal member that is, you know, kind of contributing and participating and helping to design. And so that eventually came to be Valerie Seagrass who's um, really a wonderful person and an expert in planting and ethnobotany and a wonderful storyteller about how plants are, you know, important in different ways to those groups. And so she became a part of the team and helped us with uh, planting design, particularly on the Overlook Walk. She was able to help kind of tell a really nice story.
1: Valerie Seagrass certainly is one of our beloved local celebrity storytellers. How exciting that her insights will become part of Waterfront Seattle. We caught up with Valerie, and she offered this perspective.
2: The story of Seattle for my community has been Pretty painful. It has been about a removal and about promoting the invisibility of a people. But our blood ties, you know, go back to a beautiful intertidal lagoon that the waterfront now sits on top of and we were definitely a part of that design and so to be able to be in this modern time and contribute to the sort of remodeling and reshaping of the waterfront once again in any way shape or form specifically the Seattle Aquarium was a really great opportunity and I think part of our healing story and I feel like this rooftop experience is really about being able to take in all of what we mean when we say white cap to white cap so you can look at certain spaces and see the top of Mount Tahoma, Mount Rainier see the top of that. And then you look right behind you You can't even miss it because you're hearing it, you're feeling it, That that beautiful breezy air coming in from the Salish Sea. So you're seeing the white cap of the mountain and the white cap of the seas. And then as your eyes, you know, sort of scan down that design, you see all the different cultural ecosystems that are involved between those two sort of pillars of notoriety. So you're seeing the food forests, you're seeing high mountain meadows, you're seeing berry gardens, you're seeing saltwater beaches. You're experiencing all of that, you know, in a very urbanized area. (laughs) What used to have a viaduct buzzing over your head, you know, a highway buzzing over your head has now been reclaimed. And this story of land and waterways and the connection between the two is now sort of lifted up in that area. So the healing from the effects of colonization is about answering the call to increase visibility to my community. And for so long, Seattle has felt sort of separate from where, you know, Muckleshoot people thrive and belong and live nowadays in this modern world, um, we fish those waters. We're out there in the bay and in the river, you know, harvesting salmon, and we, we manage, co-manage every bit of salmon habitat between here and, you know, the foothills. And so um, we are, you know, moving and dwelling in that land, but for Muckleshoot youth to be in that space and to know, like, this is where we are from, this is where we descend from... That, to me, is important. It's important for the transmission of our culture, and it's important for our future generations to know that they belong here too.
1: So Andrew, let's talk about placemaking for a moment. Historically, the roadway along the waterfront has been called Alaskan Way, which I've always found odd since this isn't Alaska. And what's the significance of the renaming of Alaskan Way with the additional street signs, the ones that are brown in color, that have been placed along the park? Signs naming the place Zizalich.
0: The Lushootseep meaning for Dizalich is Little Crossing Over Place. And historically, the waterfront was a kind of spaghetti string of railroad tracks that were built out over the water. And slowly that was filled in and the railroad tracks were still there and then trucking took over and railroad tracks kind of went away. And before all that and before the kind of colonial settlement of of Seattle, the tribes used it for living, for fishing, for commerce, for all of that. And they had a a number of kind of important locations along the waterfront. And there's there's been a series of really wonderful presentations of that. Um, I think the the water lines exhibit is maybe one of them, where it's, you know, looking at this kind of pre-colonial map of not just Seattle, but the kind of Puget Sound area and where identifying where these places are. And it's useful in identifying that and, and understanding the kind of the past of these places. But there are also places that are often quite populated now. And so... Ballast Island is a, a, a piece of land that was uh, set out a bit from the city, and it was an area where people lived. And as a part of the city's kind of past with the Indian Expulsion Act and all these things, these people were removed. And that was both a very you know culturally important place to them and their home. And so recognizing some of that, I think, is important. And one of the ways that the, the city is you know, trying to do that is through something like the street name and kind of taking that from a white European context and, and looking back a bit more.
1: So we ask our guest to bring an uh, object into the studio, and you have this big chunk of wood?
0: Yes, yeah. I, I, I brought this, this wonderful piece of wood with me, and this used to be underwater and was part of the seawall. It was actually the front face of the seawall, and it is a West African uh, hardwood called Eki wood. It's incredibly dense, which means it's incredibly heavy, and when they were doing the demolition for the seawall, we, we saw these boards and we said, what is that? We, like, we to, and so we found out and there was a huge quantity of it. And so we said, we have to do something with it. So save it. Um, and so the, uh, many, many of these boards uh, went under the Ballard Bridge and were stored there for years. And our uh, plan to reuse those was on all of the railings along the the main part of the waterfront, we would use this as a wood top, and so this is a a cross section of a long beam um, that will be uh, four feet wide by two inches thick um, by about eleven inches wide, and so um, we're taking something that was at one time directly below you and part of kind of holding up the seawall and putting that kind of on top and making it visible. When was that wood installed in the seawall? I believe it was maybe in the late 1800s or early 1900s. Amazing. Um yeah, and, and part of it uh in the import of the the sea wall being rebuilt was taking a structure that was essentially built out of wood, beautiful very dense wood um, that you know can can thrive well but you know had been reaching its lifespan. Um you had uh, these underwater termites called gribbles that would eat away at it and so you'll be seeing that on top of the waterfront and the railings with all of its character.
1: And we ask our guests to share a place that matters to them in the
0: Pacific Northwest. Does anything come to mind? It does, yeah. the um, I couldn't you know, pick one, but I could pick an experience of mine that I've sort of cherished as I've come and visited over the years. And that is kind of running along the waterfront. And and before my day starts, which generally is early, I'd go for a run when it's still dark and go kind of up the waterfront, quiet and sleepy and up the Myrtle Edwards um, trail on the waterfront. And you, you stop and you realize there's this weight of the city behind you, you know, that's very urban and frenetic. And you look out and you have this kind of vast openness of, of Elliott Bay there with freighters dotting across and, um, and fishermen that it always was such a special experience to kind of be out there and, and have this juxtaposition of a big urban environment and the kind of big nature of the Sailor Sea.
1: Let's talk about resiliency. Since you started this project, a lot has happened in the world. We've had COVID, we've had urban riots, we've had work from home where people are no longer really compelled to be downtown for work. How do parks contribute to the resiliency of a city? And then specifically, what you know, hope maybe should we be placing in this park in helping
0: Seattle through this more difficult time? I think that one of the things that COVID helped expose was the reliance that we had on outdoor spaces, right? We we could no longer be indoor together, but we could be outdoor. And I think, you know, for generally for, for city dwellers, we're used to this idea of living some part of our lives outside in public space. And I think, you know, for people that maybe live in denser areas like Seattle or or New York, that becomes a, a pretty regular kind of aspect of your life. And being comfortable with you know with, with being in those spaces is important, but also is having comfortable spaces to be in that are inviting um, so that you have a place to um, you know go meet up with a friend. you have a place to go be lonely. Um, you have a place to um, meet up with a large group of friends and see a person playing music. And having those opportunities in a way, I think, give society some social resilience when there is a crisis like COVID. And so, you know, for example, in New York, where you have many parks, a lot of people would do that. That's where you would you would meet everybody. You would go outside and there were still things to do. And if we didn't have that, we would all be stuck in our, you know, 200 square foot apartments and, you know, deeply depressed. So I think in that sense, there is this kind of, you know, um, potential for social resiliency um, to happen with parks. There's obviously, you know, the environmental resiliency, too, of using vegetation to help cool heat island effects, um, to help uh, plants and insects migrate better, to help take in stormwater so it's not kind of going directly into the infrastructure. So there's kind of a wide array of different lenses to kind of view resiliency in parks and social, environmental
1: so this is a very interesting kind of situation for you because you've been involved with this, it'll be decades, right? Yeah. From the very, very beginning of your career, you know, until now, and then the, it's, the project is not yet finished. So how has the project transformed you, your perspective, both as a landscape architect and as just as a human being?
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the amount that I've learned on this and, and uh, still, still will be learning is... Um, it's vast. We we've been really fortunate to have a wonderful team, both kind of on the city side and the rest of the consultants um, and stakeholders. That they're all really wonderful people with you know families and lives that over 13 years you got to you know know and participate in. They are both your coworkers, but also often your friends, and um, that that's been been really valuable to me. Um, we're fortunate as an office to have really highly skilled people that are motivated and excited about what they do, um, which is in turn, you know, motivating. But we also have that, I think, with this this group of people on this project. And so there is this constant kind of desire to to learn and grow, to share knowledge. And I think that both has, you know, made the, the project better. But it's also been, you know, extremely edifying to gain some knowledge from, you know, this big group of people that are very bright.
1: What have you learned about the essence of what it is to be a Seattleite or a Pacific Northwest person as opposed to, say, the Midwesterner you were as a child and a New Yorker or a
0: Bostonian? I think that there is this value of the bigness of nature that Seattleites have an experience that you don't have everywhere. Uh, certainly, the Midwest and certainly the East Coast. And with that comes a sort of kind of quiet appreciation for being in a place. And some of that is, you know, I think of being out on the end of Pier sixty-two and having that kind of, you know, quiet experience of of all this kind of vast nature in front of you and having that kind of ability to self-reflect where it's i think that's harder for us in other places where you know it's so busy and you don't have that same you know kind of ability or setting to do that and so i think that's a quality that i admire of Seattleites, and that maybe that is a pacific northwest quality but i admire that
1: well thank you for being our guest today and I love what you've done for the city and how your work has really galvanized all of us to contribute
0: to making this a better place. Thank you. It's been so fun talking to you. I appreciate it.
1: Join us next time for a conversation with Scott Dolfe a Seattle carpenter who spent his lifetime caring for the 1907 Roland Denny Mansion located in Seattle's Windermere neighborhood. Scott's stories begin with Roland Denny, who was six weeks old when the Denny party landed on Alki Beach in 1851. Later in life, Denny hired architects Beb and Mendel to design the mission-style mansion to share with his wife. While well, ruinous fires, equestrian adventures, and controversies that arose when the South Korean-based Unification Church moved in, as well as the brutal murders of a philanthropic couple next door, enliven Scott's tales of this little-known place of Seattle's past, Locke Keldon. Thank you for joining us today Audio engineering and sound design by Daniel Gunther. Photography by Travis Lawton. Administrative support from Mary Mansour. Theme music by Toma Nakayama and performed by Grant Hallway with additional music by Andrew Weathers and Fox Hunt. We record at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District. And for this episode, we also want to acknowledge that Seattle's waterfront, Salish, stands on the lands and shared waters of the Puget Sound Coast Salish peoples, whose ancestors resided here since time immemorial With gratitude, we honor the land, the water, and its peoples. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you've been listening to Power of Place, stories of the Pacific Northwest. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or subscribe to us. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to share your stories.